Good evening. Quite how they thought they could keep the lid on the truth. Quite how Boris Johnson thought he could simply lie his way out of it. I just don't know. It was obvious to me that as time went by, more details about not just the party, but now allegedly up to seven social events, one of them so raucous that it ended in the wee hours of the morning and a door was broken. But they somehow thought, no, we always get away with it. We're the Tory party, we're the old Etonian toffs, we can just lie our way out. Well, I tell you what, it's unravelling pretty quickly. Just in the last few minutes, we learn that Jack Doyle, who is the most senior spin doctor in Number 10, Boris's communications man, somebody that he works with every day, day in, day out. It turns out, and ITV, again, have got this story, yep, Jack Doyle not only was at the party on the 18th of December, but he even handed out the awards, no doubt, to much joviality and fun, whilst the rest of you were all simply locked down. And all of this, as it unravels over the next few days, and as the Prime Minister is proven to have told untruths to the House of Commons, uh, to be wholly unreliable, I think marks the beginning of the end of his premiership. That doesn't mean he'll be gone in a couple of weeks. It just means never again will it be glad, confident morning. But what affects all of us is what was done last night, done, I believe, in panic, as a reaction, as an attempt to cover up Partygate, namely the laying out of what we have to do in Plan B. Let's remind ourselves what Boris Johnson told us last night. We will reintroduce the guidance to work from home. Second, from this Friday, we will further extend the legal requirement to wear a face mask to most, to most public indoor venues, including theatres and cinemas. We'll also make the NHS COVID pass mandatory for entry into nightclubs and venues where large crowds gather, including unseated indoor venues with more than 500 people. But something even more remarkable than that happened. Something was said last night by a Conservative Prime Minister that was the most unconservative thing I have ever heard in my lifetime, almost certainly ever uttered in the 200-year history of the Conservative Party. It was the prospect of mandatory vaccines. And I don't think the press today picked up enough on the import of that. Let's hear it again. This is what Boris Johnson said last night. I think that uh, there is going to come a point if we can uh, if we can show that the uh, the vaccines are capable of of holding the uh, of Omicron, uh, and that's the the key thing that I think that we need to to test. Well, I do think that we're going to have to have a, a conversation about uh, ways in which we uh, we deal with this uh, pandemic. Because I want to be absolutely clear with you, I don't believe we can keep going indefinitely uh, with. Uh, uh, non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions, uh, I mean restrictions on people's way of life, uh, where just because uh, a substantial proportion of the population still sadly has not got uh, vaccinated. And I think we're going to need to have a, co a national conversation about the, the way forward and, uh, and the other things that we can do uh, to protect those who are, are hard to reach, who haven't got vaccinated for one reason or another, who, who may have medical uh, reasons why they can't get vaccinated, other ways of, of protecting them. Uh Unbelievable. 
There's Boris Johnson coming into line with the European Union, the globalists, the multinationals. I find those words amazing. I think everything that was said last night at that press conference was an overreaction to the threat of Omicron. That's my view. You tell me what you think. Am I right with that? GBviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet at gbnews. Well, there wasn't much time last night to analyse this. It, it, was, it was all coming so thick and fast, but there's been a day to think about it. And joining me now is Marcus Fish, Conservative Member of Parliament for Yeovil. Um, and Marcus, I think it's fair to say uh, you described plans to bring in even the certificates as really draconian and an utter disgrace. Uh, just how angry? I mean, you said this last night, perhaps in the heat of the moment, you've had 24 hours to reflect. By the way, welcome to the programme. How are you feeling about it now? Well, look, I am in favour of vaccination. I think uh, the vaccines uh, are a large part of the reason why um, our immunity is, in fact, standing up well against Omicron. Um, and we need to absolutely try to try to persuade as many people of that efficacy and get as many people vaccinated and boosted as we can. But I'm dead against authoritarian measures to mandate these things um, on a general basis at any rate, because that's really the thin end of a very dangerous authoritarian wedge. And funnily enough, some of the communities that are most resistant to getting vaccinated at the moment, um, just become even more suspicious of the authority that is telling them to do that um, if they go about it in that way. So I think it's counterproductive. It may well be. But, but, but Marcus, going even further than what was proposed in Plan B, and it's worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, that the idea in England that a vaccine passport would ever be necessary was called unthinkable, and yet here we are. It's being proposed, it's coming in, in short or very short order. But the idea that we could have mandatory vaccines, I mean, this surely, Marcus Fish, as a Conservative, this is beyond comprehension, isn't it? It is totally unacceptable to me, yes. The idea of mandatory vaccination, giving up freedom, uh, to control our own bodies is a pretty fundamental thing. And I think uh, the Prime Minister should reflect on what he said and reflect that, in fact, that is totally unacceptable for the uh, free and liberal society that so many generations since Magna Carta have fought to establish here in the UK. Does he have the moral authority to still govern this country? Look, I, I, uh, I support the Prime Minister. Um, I think when it comes to these sorts of things, um, our core freedoms, uh, it is absolutely right that you need uh, moral authority. And moral authority comes from upholding these sorts of freedoms and making yes, decisions but Marcus, based on evidence, evidence rather than fear and propaganda. But Marcus, I would put to you, I would put to you that his moral authority has been fatally wounded by successive, successively just not telling us the truth about what happened in Downing Street, not just on December the 18th last year, but on repeated other times. And, and we hear tonight through ITV that Jack Doyle, his top communications man, was at that party 
in Downing Street on the 18th of December. We hear that 50 people were there and indeed that Doyle even handed out the awards. When a prime minister simply can't tell us the truth, is, is he fit to be our leader at all? I don't know anything about these uh, parties, and I think it's absolutely right. Would you believe they're they being happened? investigated? I certainly don't condone. I mean, I like other people. I, I not my family weren't in as bad a position as as many others were, but but I feel frustrated personally that um, that we tried to follow all the rules um, and were inconvenienced. Um, and other people had it far, far worse than we did. So, I Are you seriously suggesting... What they're going through. Marcus, Marcus, are you seriously suggesting that these parties didn't happen? I honestly don't know. I really know nothing about it. I know nothing about it. I know nothing about the purposes or anything. So I just right. can't uh, comment on well, that. I'm let's afraid. just take a hypothesis that, you know, and we've had this revelation tonight about Jack Doyle, and there'll be more over the next two days, just take the hypothesis that six or seven parties did happen, that they all broke the rules. Why can't the Prime Minister just be honest with us? And, and frankly, if he's told the House of Commons twice there were no parties, when he jolly well knew there were, is he fit? Or should the Conservative Party find someone different to lead the country? I think we certainly need to get to the bottom of what has occurred. Um, and I think we need to reserve judgment until okay. that is established. Well, one thing for certain, Marcus Fish, Conservative MP for Yeovil, we will get to the bottom of this. And thank you for coming on and giving us your thoughts. Pleasure. Well, joining me now is entrepreneur and nightclub owner Alex Proud. Now, Alex, good evening. Good evening. So vaccine passports are coming in. So... People want to get into your club. They've got to show the vaccine passport. I guess the government would say that nightclubs, and I know they've changed a bit in recent times, but I'm guessing the government would say, well, they're fairly crowded environments. People are close together for long periods of time. What on earth is your problem, Alex Proud, with asking people to prove they've been double vaxxed? Well, I'm, I'm going to avoid the uh, the philosophical thing that, that that you've repeated, which I despise, which is the reason we kicked Napoleon in the backside was to avoid European-style restrictions on our freedom. But let's just talk about the practicalities. The truth of it is that the hospitality sector, by the government's own figures, are responsible for sub-2% of infections. It's far more dangerous going on a train, getting in a supermarket, going to work or even going to hospital. And yet none of these places have to have the same requirements. And it also, really importantly, Nigel, the government's own scientific advice was that vaccine passports have very, very little effect on transmission rates. That, that's their own research for, for a multitude of reasons. And, and you sit there and kind of go, so your, your scientists have told you this probably won't work. You've hit this sector hard repeatedly without giving us any form of compensation. The insurance companies never paid out. We keep getting kicked into the long grass. And who are the first people that you go and kick yet again? It's our sector. We're all now paying back the vast loans we had to take out last year to survive. And even Boris and all these incompetent idiots leaking all this stuff to the press for the last two weeks has meant that I personally, I've lost about, I know, 200,000 in bookings in the last two weeks. Add vaccine passports to that equation 
And if we follow the uh, trend in Wales and Scotland, you're looking at 25 to 30 percent drop in business, which is essentially pushing most clubs back into loss making scenarios for no reason other than to make this incompetent buffoon look like he's doing something. And, and, and the, the visceral sense of anger right now is, is really difficult to cope with. This is someone whose staff or himself were partying in Downing Street when we were locked down. And now he's turned around and gone, I need to look good. What should I do? Let's kick them in the backside and see what happens, even though his scientists are telling him it will have no effect. That makes me furious, Nigel, to be honest. You do sound pretty angry, Alex. Um, how difficult is it in practical terms on the door of a nightclub to check these vaccine passports. And how do, you, how do your people know they're not looking at, 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 at fake certificates? Well, we know, obviously, from, from the whole Wembley fiasco of the European Cup final that, 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 that it doesn't really work. That when you're looking at mobile phones, they're incredibly easy to, to scam. It's incredibly easy to have a fake app on your phone. We, in most nightclubs, you might be letting 500 to 1,000 or to 2,000 people in. Um, they're all in a queue together. What, are we going to socially distance? What are we doing? You know, it's going to be like with those plague films. What happens when, when someone hasn't got it? They've already sat in the queue for an hour to get in. The whole thing, practically speaking, you're right, is a nonsense. And, and the ability to scam it or to fraudulently cheat the system is incredibly easy and, and will occur. It, it makes a mockery of it, even if you agree with it, even if you think it's a good idea in practical terms. It won't work. And, and we, we've shown that time and time again to the government. I think the government scientists themselves know that. Alex, all I can say to you and the rest of the nighttime industry and those running sports venues is you genuinely do have my sympathy and I fully understand the anger. Thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us on GB News. In a moment, we will talk about the plan for mandatory vaccines, but we'll also talk a little bit more about the vaccines themselves because it was presented to us was it not in the early part of the year get a double vax and all of our problems are over it isn't really turning out that way is it well i'm asking tonight whether the launch of plan b the threat of a national conversation about mandatory vaccines is all a big overreaction and some audience reaction coming in from you. One on Twitter says, we have got to the point where mandatory vaccines are now actually a debate. Things are flying. Yes, well, depends whether you think that's the right direction or the wrong direction. Bernard says, Boris is right. Why should people who have had the vaccine be locked down? Because a minority, by the way, who can't give you a logical reason why they don't want the vaccine they just don't want it. Well, look, that's fine. And if I can be really convinced that those who've had the vaccine will not be carriers of the vaccine, uh, then I might think you've got a point. But nobody yet's really convinced me of that. Neil says, children have BCG without adults kicking up such a fuss. Why on earth should there be such a fuss over the C19 vaccine? Because I had, I had the BCG when I was 13. I've not been jabbed since. I've been jabbed twice. They want me to be jabbed again now, no doubt next June and next December. Oh, I nearly forgot. They want me to have a, have a flu jab as well. Can you not see why some people are beginning to become a bit hesitant? Lindsay, via GB View, says, over my dead body, will I be forced to take something they can't even prove is safe? Peter gives the view 
Let's have a public open debate about the vaccine, side effects, trial dates, placebos and the yellow card reporting system. Why has this not already happened? Well, to a large extent, I guess that's because the government, uh, Boris Johnson from the start, has told us, get the vaccine and all will be well. And indeed, yesterday in the House of Commons, in the midst of his huge political difficulties over Partygate, he just kept saying over and over, get the booster, get the booster, get the booster, as if that's going to solve everything. But I want to debate tonight, not just the ethics of mandatory vaccines, but also just how efficient this vaccine really is. Because I don't think we've had enough of an open, honest debate in this country through our media channels on this. So joining me tonight are Norman Fenton, Director of Risk Information Management Research Group at Queen Mary University of London, and Sally Cutler, Professor of Medical Microbiology at the University of East London. Good evening and welcome to both of you. Good evening. Norman, I want to start with you. A few months ago, when the idea of vaccine passports first raised its head, uh, we were told it would be unethical, uh, un-English, un-British. It would never happen. And yet we have them now uh, in uh, Scotland uh, and in Wales. Um, and it's coming to England very, very shortly. So the unthinkable becomes the thinkable quite quickly in some situations. And now we're talking about mandatory vaccinations. I'd like to know your opinion, number one, on the morality and ethics of that. And number two, can you try and help answer my question? Are people who've been vaccinated much less likely to catch and pass the virus on to somebody else? Well, first of all, even if the virus itself and the various um, the variants that are being spoken up as being you know, highly dangerous, even if they're as even if they're as deadly, even if it's as deadly as being claimed, and even if the vaccines are as safe and effective as some people are claiming. I don't believe that anything like that justifies this gross intrusion of civil liberties and freedom of movement that something like <coughs> mandatory vaccines impose. I mean, the, if you just look at the... It, it actually contravenes the UNESCO um, Declaration on Bioethics and uh, Human Rights, which the UK is a signatory to. So, for example, Article 6 there says that, um, that any, medical, uh, any, any medical treatment requires free and informed consent. And Article 11 says talks about it mustn't, there must be no discrimination or stigmatisation of people who refuse the mm. treatment. And, of course, there's also, it also contravenes the Nuremberg Code. So irrespective of how dangerous it is, irrespective of how effective the vaccines are, this is, this is a, a total erosion and infringement of our civil liberties and freedom of okay. movement. OK. And as far as the vaccine effectiveness is concerned... Well, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, on the effectiveness, we'll come back to that. OK. But, but I'm, one thing I do want to know is if I'm vaccinated and I'm standing next to somebody who's unvaccinated and we're visiting a care home of elderly people, am I, as the vaccinated person, much less likely to be carrying virus and to be a transmitter of it than the unvaccinated well, person? Well, we just look at the statistics about the overall impact of the vaccine of people who are vaccinated and compare the unvaccinated with the, va with the vaccinated. And so far... The evidence from, you know, the UK government, from um, the public health, uh, from the United Kingdom Health and Safety Authority, 
what it seems to be showing is that actually um, there's no there's no evidence that that there are uh, lower infection rates in the vaccinated compared with the unvaccinated. Okay, Norman, Sally, let's just begin with the moral point here. Um, You know, the idea that in Austria, in Germany and who knows, maybe in this country, that we treat a section of the population. It might be 10 or 12 percent here, but it's 30 percent in Austria. The idea that we treat a large chunk of our population differently and that they have different rights depending on their vaccination status. How does that sit with you? It's awkward, but basically they're trying to protect the population as best they can. And those people who are not vaccinated have less protection against infection. And so this is partly why they were doing this differential approach. But um, I think really sort of along the lines of your other speaker, I don't think that vaccine... um, Vaccination should be made compulsory. I think there okay. is that freedom of choice and people should have that. That's what our ethics beliefs are founded on, that freedom of choice. And if people don't give that informed consent, I think really sort of that is taking things a step too far. But yeah, no, we are I mean, in a We have to take sort of very radical decisions at this point in time. Not all of them are going to be permanent decisions and many of these are short-term choices. Sally, I get the point, you know, and I think we all agree uh, that the imposition of mandatory vaccines would be a very retrograde step. But you make the point that the reason governments are getting tough is because the unvaccinated are more vulnerable. But actually, you know, people decide to drink or smoke or take drugs or be grossly overweight and or take no exercise. And, you know, they know these things are damaging their health chances. The real question to me is not whether somebody wants to take a bigger risk than the person next to them. It's this question that I keep asking and that nobody ever seems to be able to answer. And it's this. If I'm standing here as a vaccinated person next to an unvaccinated person going into that old people's home, am I any less likely to be a transmitter of the virus into that home because I've been vaccinated? There's about a 50% reduction in your risk of becoming infected if you have actually been recently vaccinated. So that there is a reduction, but it's not total. You can still become infected. You can still pass that infection on. But there is a reduction and there's also that protection from the more serious consequences. So you're less likely to be hospitalised. You're less likely to die. No, listen, I understand that and I believe that and I'm not challenging that for one moment. But you say you think there's a 50% less chance? Yeah. Uh, Well, I'd love to see some stats. I'd love to see some stats on that, Sally. I'd love to see some figures. But let's just move on to the further point. And the one that's worrying me, I've not not questioned the vaccine at any point through this. I've, I've taken it because, you know, I thought the campaign that took place against the MMR vaccine was very counterproductive. The idea that, you know, measles was back in London made me very nervous. So I, like tens of millions of others, was happy to be told, get the double vaccine, you'll be protected, the pandemic will be over. Now I'm being told I've got to have a booster and no doubt another booster next um, summer and one again at the end of next year and perhaps a flu jab as well. And yet, and here's my problem, 
my concern, Sally. I look at Gibraltar, which has got a very, very high vaccination rate and yet has had a big COVID outbreak. I look at Israel, which has been very heavily vaccinated, but again, very high COVID outbreaks. And the question I'm asking is, if this vaccine does protect us from extreme illness and death, okay, but its level of protection from catching COVID again, surely must now be called into question. This is really sort of what the vaccine companies are actively working on. They do need to potentially modify the vaccine. We're at the beginning of this Omicron wave at the moment. And what we do know is that the level of mutation in this new variant means that the vaccine is not going to protect to the degree we'd like it to be protecting our population. And so it's very likely that we're going to need to tweak it. That will take time. Um, the companies are suggesting sort of 100 days because it's, it's not a massive change in the way that they're making the vaccine. It's just fine tuning as they do with the flu vaccine on an annual basis. But it well, probably does need that modification. Well, OK. Uh, Norman Fenton, I put the same point to you. I look at Gibraltar, I look at Israel, I look at, you know, rates in this country, and it does seem that this vaccine doesn't give us very much protection from catching COVID at all. Well, it doesn't. And also, there's also the issue about whether the, the very introduction of, uh, a, you know, a mass vaccination programme while, while there was a pandemic was itself potentially creating or leading to shedding and, and, and the creation of the new variants. That's something that also hasn't been very, very widely discussed. Certainly, there's no evidence. Um, you know, you look, we, look, we look at statistics. That's what we do. We look at government, public yeah. government statistics. And is there any real evidence that, you know, the vac the, uh, of the efficacy of the vaccine? I mean, and, and this whole thing, I, 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 I actually dispute the, you know, very much dispute the, the ridiculously exaggerated claims about the idea that not only does the vaccine protect against infection, because it clearly doesn't seem to be from the data, the most vaccinated places seem to be the ones with the, the highest uh, infection rates. But also about this whole idea that, that ah, but it stops hospitalizations and deaths. Well, no, this is all based on, you know, very, very easily manipulated data. We've, we, all through the pandemic, the, the, there's an incredibly um, manipulated data based on the definition well, of a case. You know, that's just a positive, it's not an ill person, it's a person who's positive on a PCR yeah. test. And also, this whole notion of what, what is, is a vaccinated person. So all, all of these, this data about hospitalizations and deaths, they define a, um, an unvaccinated person as somebody, you know, who's at least, for example, at least 14 days after vaccination. Sometimes they have to be you know, double vaccinated to be counted. Well, you're clearly yeah. Norman. Quite... Yeah, I mean, that's when most, most adverse reactions to the vaccine happen, you know, within the first... No, you, I mean, you know, you're clearly got a, you've clearly got a growing level of scepticism about this. Are the claims on the internet uh, that Pfizer have put out a report talking about side effects uh, from this vaccine being rather bigger than anybody has debated? Are these the hysterical wild shores of the internet or is it something we ought to be discussing? We, we definitely should be discussing that. I mean, um, colleagues of, of, of mine, close colleagues, have looked very, very seriously at the, the adverse uh, reaction data, and it, it is very, very concerning. We're seeing these, um, you know... But, it's, but, but, but presumably, it's still a very small percentage. Um, it's a much 
bigger percentage compared with previ- compared with all previous um, uh, vaccines. It's much much higher. Um, so um, you know there there are no and, and we've got these known cases of mm. um, myocarditis, especially in young males. You know these strange cases of the uh, the footballers and other sportsmen sort of just dropping down, you know, fainting, collapsing. Uh, but also our own data, looking at the Office of National Statistics' most recent data on mortality. Overall, there isn't, I mean, there's no significant difference on all-cause mortality between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, which also immediately suggests, well, then, you know, if the, if the vaccine isn't, let's say, saving as many people as it's killing, then, then is, is well, it really worth it? Well, but, but, the, but the thing is that I, I, the, the concern is about what happens to people, people at risk, people who are at risk, you know, who were given the, the vaccine as a priority, you know, it is what, what's the evidence about what happened to those people? We, you know, what we, that's something that needs well, to be very carefully I mean, stati- looked at. Look, statistics we can argue about all the time. But, I, but Sally, um, I've, I've been bombarded, I'm sure you have, and all of us, in any form of public debate in life. I've been bombarded for months with people talking about side effects of vaccines, and I've been very sceptical about the people that have written to me um, on the basis that I've generally been very, very pro-vaccines, and I still just about am. Do do you have concerns, Sally, about that Pfizer report, about the sheer number of medical complaints that appear to be linked to the vaccine? Really, I think the safety record is incredible with these vaccines. They're very, very impressive with their safety record. What I'd like to see is a little bit better on the efficacy. I would like to see that sterile immunity, that ability to prevent infection, not just the serious consequences, but the actual infection. And sadly, we haven't got that. And um, the safety record I think really sort of the the biggest issue that there was was that very, very small number of people that had the blood clots. And they think now that they've got to the root cause of what was actually the problem there. And that's something that can be changed and the vaccine will become even safer. So I would urge people that on safety grounds, there is no concern. The probability of an adverse reaction beyond a slight sore arm is minuscule. Sally, I want to say to you and Norman to you, to both of you, thank you for coming on, engaging in this debate. And you know something, folks, sitting at home, only on GB News will you actually hear both sides of this debate. And it's important that we do talk about these things and we do talk about people's concerns. In a moment, we'll go to Talking Pints. I'll be joined by Paul Beaver, former editor-in-chief of Jane's Weekly, uh, an expert on aviation. And, hey, you know, we're going to talk about what's going on with China and Taiwan, too. It's that time of the day. The GB News pub has been declared open. I am delighted to say, and I'm joined by Paul Beaver, defence aviation expert and former editor-in-chief of Jane's Defence Weekly. Welcome. Thank you, Nigel. To the programme. With your good health. The timing, Paul, of getting you on is actually rather good because you were a freelance war correspondent. You've been an expert in BBC studios and Sky studios and, and, and kind of when you were involved with Jane's Defence Weekly, it was at a time the Falklands had been a few years before. We'd had the first Gulf War in Kuwait. Uh, we were, you know, on the verge of 
the next big military expeditions into Afghanistan and Iraq, which both of which lasted rather longer mm -hmm. uh, and cost rather more in terms of lives and money than we'd ever envisaged. But what really interests me about this is you were somebody then who was quite a regular part of this debate. Mm -hmm. And defence itself was a big part of the national debate. It was. And a big part of general elections and what we talked about. And there were some quite, well, it appeared some quite big definitions between the Conservative and Labour parties on the importance of defence. And particularly on nuclear, if you remember. Yes. Nuclear deterrence was something that was particularly divided um, uh, the parties in the days of Michael Foote and, and Margaret Thatcher. Yes, Labour had nightmares. Yes, they did. Over that issue of unilateralism, yeah. Yeah. CND and all the rest of it. But the reason I say all of this is relevant now is we've had in the last few months the Taliban have taken over Afghanistan again. We've got China becoming, I would say, increasingly bellicose mm -hmm. about the position. They know where they want to go. They have an agenda, as they always have done. Yes. And they're very happy to take that agenda forward. And they know that some parts of the West are weak. We might get really excited about uh, the Uyghur people, as, as we should do. Um, they don't really care about that. They're more interested in uh, fulfilling the dream of, well, Hong Kong is, is lost to the world now. It's now part of China. Taiwan next, who knows? The Nine Dash Line, the South China Sea. If, we, if I was still doing this <coughs> yeah. weekly, I'd be looking at that um, every week. But it isn't just that, is it? Because we've got uh, actually North Korea mm -hmm. beginning to fire the little rocket man, as he was mm -hmm. called, firing rockets again. Mm -hmm. We've got Putin playing all sorts of... Mm -hmm. Well, maybe they're mind games. I don't know. We, and we don't. And, and we don't know. Yeah. You know. It is, you know, the 100,000 troops, does he seriously want to invade the Ukraine? Or, I mean, or, or is he preying on the fact that we have a, an American president who's going through a very tough time politically? Mm -hmm. um, but really, Paul, the point I want to make to you is this. 30 years ago, this would have been a major part of our national news on a daily basis. Are we militarily prepared? At what level should we intervene? What are our NATO partners prepared to do? How is the ongoing military and intelligence relationship with America? These would have been debated in the House of Commons. Uh, they would have become issues in by-elections. They've gone off the radar. Well, wow. they've gone off the radar, I think, for, for another number of reasons. I mean, defence has been subsumed by the whole security debate because of, of terrorism, Islamic terrorism in particular, but also the rise of, of the right-wing extremist groups in places like Germany and Poland. There's a lot of concern about that. So defence as it was, I think, is gone. There's a, there could be debate about cyber, but cyber isn't very newsworthy. So the great thing about debate uh, about defence 30 years ago, and I was running Jane's, was, mm. was about tanks and ships and aeroplanes. Yeah. And you can see those. I mean, politicians can touch them. You know, or even really good. appear in, in the turrets or, of or them. <laughs> and, and although that hasn't stopped our, our beloved Foreign Secretary, of course, from doing that uh, in I, the it last It was a very Thatcher-esque-looking picture. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a really good picture <laughs> opportunity. I believe that uh, the current Secretary of State for Defence is currently in Sweden. I'm sure there'll be a picture tomorrow <laughs> up in the Arctic in the snow. Um, and that's important because that demonstrates 
to our northern allies in the northern group that we care about the north. So tick, well done, yeah. ben, ben Wallace, for that. But our problem is most of what we talk about now is cyber. And Wiggly Amps are very difficult to talk about. It, how, do, how do you show cyber where you could do a matrix-style um, presentation? But actually, that's why I think it's gone off the boil. And a little bit, COVID obviously has swamped everything um, and the national debate. Um, Brexit, to a certain extent, we could have debated quite nicely what happens in defence terms now. Well, well, I had this confrontation with Nick Clegg. Head-to-head mm -hmm. -head public debates when he was Deputy Prime Minister. I did two of them with him and big national audiences. It was a big deal running up to the 2014 European elections. And I said to Clegg, one of the reasons I want to leave the European Union is I don't want to be part of a European army. Mm -hmm. And he described me as a dangerous fantasist for having dared to suggest it. And, of course, we know that the European Union is developing its own military capability. Can NATO coexist with European defence? Yes, I think it can. I, Do I think you? you have to look at, at how this works. Even, even if the French are capable of putting a European army together, they will not have what are called the national strategic means uh, that the Americans have. We all rely on what the Americans have in space, and what they have in terms of their cyber capability. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't lose any sleep over this. And I'm, I'm buoyed up by the fact that the United Kingdom is, is leading a new initiative called the Joint Expeditionary Force, which are, are if you like, uh, the 10 beer drinking nations of Northern Europe. <laughs> Norway, Sweden, Finland, the Baltics. The beer drinking. Uh, they are. They call themselves this. You know, the Dutch are involved yeah. and even Iceland came on board in, 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 in April this year. Now, the, uh, Iceland doesn't have an army. It just have a, has an unsinkable aircraft carrier. So we have the Jeff. The great thing about the Jeff is only 10 nations, but actually... We don't need to have that whole NATO or European Union panoply of bureaucracy. It's a matter of the defence secretary. So is this, is this recasting? Well, I don't know if it's recasting. I think it's going in a new direction. I'm very excited by interesting. it. Interesting. Very, very I, I interesting. I think it's a really good way. But we haven't debated it. Most people in Britain have never heard of the Jeff. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's, that's really a, a great That question. is very interesting. And, of course, the AUKUS deal as well. And indeed. Where the French, who wanted to sell them 20th century technology mm -hmm. have been replaced by us and the Americans mm -hmm. said in them 21st century technology. So, so there are some good things happening. Are we spending enough money on defence? Oh, we never do. Um, uh, our problem is that, um, actually, we have got the fourth largest defence budget in the world. Are you spending our money properly is perhaps a better question. And I think there's a lot of waste. I think there's a, we could change the way we procure. I mean, there's some really serious procurement issues. But, Nigel, there always have been. I mean, when I started doing this 35 years ago, we, we had problems with, with defence procurement. We've still got problems with defence procurement. I don't know the solution. No. Aviation, Paul. Aviation. I, show, oh. I, I, showed, I showed a clip here. Do you want Spitfires? Oh, absolutely. Yes, So yes, I know yes. what you feel about Spitfires. Yes. Um, so I brought along some books. I think you've already got my book, Spitfire People. I do. I do. Um, but, I do. But I thought I'd bring along my... My picture book, um, so Spitfire Evolution, there are 73 variants of the Spitfire in there. Fantastic. I um, love it. So that's one for I love you it. to, I love uh, to it. take well, home and, and I've, read. I've grown up very, you know, not too far away from Biggin Hill, and I used to go to exactly. every summer to the airfare, and I've got so many biographies of Battle of Britain pilots signed. 
Um, and I'm involved with a little little museum at Shoreham in Kent. There's a lovely one, museum. lovely one down there. And, and, and of course, there were Navy pilots in the Battle of Britain that nobody's heard of. For a, I, showed, I showed a clip on Monday of mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor. It was the mm-hmm. 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. For those watching this, who perhaps younger generation, who don't know much about the Battle of Britain, just give us, you've got a, a 90 seconds to tell us about the Battle of Britain, the Spitfire, the Hurricane, and the men that fought in it, and why it mattered. The Battle of Britain is significant because it was the first aerial engagement. It was the first real battle fought from the air. But it wasn't the fact that the Hurricanes and Spitfires and Defiance and Blenheims and the young men who flew them, or the radars, or any of that, won it. It was because the whole nation got behind the Royal Air Force Fighter Command. So they were the tip of the spear, the very tip of the spear, 2,900 of them, um, of which about 550 were killed, of something like 16 nations uh, involved. Um, Not as many Poles as most people would believe, actually. Um, But uh, the first people to step forward, New Zealand. And it's really interesting when you look at the at the numbers. Why is it really important? Because it's the first time that the Nazi war machine was stopped. Why is it also important? It's because it proved that our air defence system worked. Integrated air defence system, the Dowding system, it allowed us then to develop um, other systems and when it came to the bomber campaign as well. Always remember more bomber crews died in the Battle of Britain supporting fighter command than than, uh, fighter crews died. So that, I think, is an important thing. Why is it important? Because it didn't turn the tide of the war. It just gave the Germans something to think about. If we hadn't stopped the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain, we would have have been invaded, wouldn't we? Yes. Your then question question should be after that, would it have been successful when they got a beachhead? I, I think... The army, although it didn't have equipment because it left a lot of it in France. It was Dunkirk, wasn't it? It was Dunkirk. Yeah. But the navy was still very formidable. And the Germans had no landing craft as such. They were going to use barges. Uh, they would have needed to have captured ports, Shoreham perhaps, New Haven, places like that. Yeah. Um, so would it have been successful? I, I'd, probably, I'd, I'd say no. But if we hadn't had the Battle of Britain and um, the whole of that national uh, operation, I think the Germans would have had a go and it would have been perhaps the time that Britain would have sued for peace, and that would have been catastrophic. On that note, Paul Beaver, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us here on Talking Pints. Well, there we are. It is the end of the show. And, of course, it's Barrage the Farage, the questions you send in that I do not get previous sight of. Let's give it a go. Phil, via Twitter, asks me, What's happening with the boat situation? Has it stopped? No. The wind is blowing like bilio. Um, I did speak today to my top man down at Dover. Uh, the boats will start coming again Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and next week. The numbers will once again be huge. I promise you. Now, Peter Bone, MP, was sitting here in the studio last night assuring me that the Nationality and Borders Bill passing in Parliament will stop the boats coming. I maintain, all the while we stay part of the European Convention on Human Rights. There is little we can do about it. We'll see who's right over the course of the coming months. Michael, via Twitter, asks me, I lent my red wall vote to Boris and the Tory party to get Brexit done and to put the UK first. Was it a mistake? (laughs) Well, look, I mean, I've been very critical of Boris Johnson uh, for some time. Um, I want to cheer him. I want him to get things right. Uh, I think over Partygate, uh, his rather... Can I say compulsive 
tendency not to tell the truth, may well catch up with him. Was it better in 2019 to vote for Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn? It was better to vote for Boris Johnson, whatever his faults may be. We have actually got Brexit. It hasn't made Northern Ireland very happy. It hasn't made the fishermen very happy. But I tell you what, we're in a damn sight better place than we were before. Anonymous on Twitter asks me, what are your views on the royal family? And the monarchy. I've always been very, very pro-royal. I think the arrangement that we put together back in the 17th century, after our civil war, has served us absolutely magnificently. I think the Queen is truly incredible. Uh, I have my thoughts about her successor. And I hope, as and when that time comes, and I hope it's a very long way away, that Charles will decide to do the right thing and not to play too much politics. And that's the one concern that I've got, because he could damage the monarchy very greatly if he does. Right, I'm done. It's over. I'm back with you on Monday.